Jonah. We're, we're in part five of Jonah. Take your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter three. Uh, we're going to be skimming through chapter three a little bit and then going over into chapter four. Uh, this will be our last message in this series on Jonah. I hope you've enjoyed it. hope you've been reading along. Um, as we, we keep reading the Bible, it just keeps coming alive and seeing little things and nuances and connections and all that kind of stuff. But this is our last message in Jonah. And I, you know, when, when I've spent a little time studying with these guys and I usually spend several weeks preparing prior to, so I get study time all throughout too. Uh, the, it's, it's like saying goodbye to an old friend when I have to close out a series. I, you know, these, these guys are my friends, you know. Jonah's my friend. David's my friend. Abraham's my They've helped me out a lot. How about y'all? They, they, Paul, he, he, he's a good companion on this faith, faith journey. Uh, so I, I hate to, I'm getting a little sad when I got to move on. So uh, Jonah, we're going to do what we can with you, and then we have to move on, buddy. All right. Now, the story starts in Jonah. He's given a commission from God to go to a place called Nineveh, right? And Nineveh, we know, is, the, is uh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And they're not really nice people, okay? He's saying, go to Nineveh and tell them I'm upset. Their wickedness has come up before me. So what does Jonah do? Jonah goes down to Joppa, gets down in the ship, and goes across the Mediterranean Sea. See it right there? You got Africa on the, on the south side, you got Europe on the north, you got the Middle East over here and Asia coming this way, and you got Spain way over there on the far tip. So Jonah, instead of going to the east towards Nineveh, which is kind of modern-day Iraq area in the northern section of that, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah says, I ain't going to do it. I'm not going. So he hops a boat and goes across the Mediterranean and wants to go to a place called Tarshish, which is the last known port before it goes to the great ocean. Okay? He said, I'm not going to do it. So this is kind of a picture of sin, if you look at this map, is that God has something in mind. He says, do this, don't do this. But we, in our rebellion sometimes, just like Jonah, we decide we're going to do just what we want to do, no matter what God says. So you see that picture of Jonah right there, that idea. So in chapter 1, Jonah runs from God. He wants to flee, his quote is, to flee from the presence of God. We talked about the futility of that statement. But he's serious about it. And then he gets in this downward spiral. We did a study on the word down in, in the book of Jonah and how he goes down. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, and down further into the ship, and he goes down to sleep. You know, all these things. And then he goes down into the bottom of the ocean. And anytime you decide you're going to run from God and do life your own way in your own terms, it almost always leads to this downward spiral. Downward spiral. Jonah's very selfish in this whole season. Uh, God sends a storm to try to wake him up. And at any given time, Jonah could have come to his senses and said, All right, God, you win. I I'm going to do what you want me to do. But he doesn't. He gets stubborn, he gets selfish, he, he stays, and the storm just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And one of the saddest things in the book is that Jonah, because of his state of mind and his selfish condition he's in, he really has no regard for anybody else. He doesn't have any regard for the Ninevites. He doesn't have any regard for the sailors that are on that ship. He literally endangers all of their lives and livelihood. Sin will make you that way, won't it? Where you don't care about anybody but number uno. Long story short, they surmise that it's Jonah's fault that this storm has come. God's upset. They cast lights, they roll a dice, it lands on Jonah. They throw Jonah overboard. And Jonah is swallowed up by this great fish. He's swallowed up by this beast. 
Now, if Jonah 1 ended right, if Jonah ended in chapter 1, if the story ended right here, it would just be another tragedy of human existence to where we go about our own way and it ends in tragedy. But thank God it doesn't end right there. We go to Jonah 2. Jonah, from the belly of the beast, from the inside of this fish, Jonah cries out to God. He prays. God hears him. God delivers him. And the fish spits him up. So now Jonah's coming up in the world. He's been going down in the world. Now he's coming up in the world. Now, when we get to heaven, don't, don't, won't you be glad to ask Jonah what happened? I mean, isn't that going to be a fascinating conversation? What in the world was that like? What was that like? You heard of two old ladies that were talking by the fence. They were fussing about this and that and the other. One said, uh, you think Jonah's going to be in heaven? The lady said, absolutely he's going to be in heaven. I got a bunch of questions to ask him when I get there. What was it like to be in the fish? What was it like to do all that kind of thing? What was it like to be a part of that kind of move? What was that all like, Jonah? And the lady said, well, what if he's not in heaven? One lady looked at the other one. She said, well, then you can ask her. <laughs> so, yeah, never mind. <laughs> never mind. All right. So the fish spits Jonah up. Now let's pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 3. Jonah comes out of the belly of the fish, and now he is in Nineveh. He has made a vow back to God again to commit his life again and say, I will do what you want me to do, God. I will pay my vows, is what he says. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the cities of Nineveh on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, This is his message. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you say that last part starting with that word yet? Can you say it with me? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, that's quite a message, isn't it? It's kind of in your face. It doesn't have a whole lot of detail. It doesn't have a whole lot of instruction in it. But it's very pointed. Something bad's coming down the pike. Now, pay attention to that word overthrown. We're going to come back to that in just a, a little bit, all right? An amazing thing happens in Nineveh. You can start in verse number 5, reading on down to verse number 9. The people of Nineveh, they believe what Jonah's saying, and they believe God. And the inference is that they all repent of their sins. They begin, every household, every father, every mother takes their children. They ask God's blessing. They ask for God to, to forgive them of their sins and forgive them for what they've done. And a great revival breaks loose in Nineveh. The people begin to repent. And then it even says that the king of Nineveh, who was the baddest man on the planet at the time, and when I say bad, I don't mean like Michael Jackson bad. I mean like bad, bad. He, he's a bad dude. I mean, he's, he's raiding people's communities and nations and, and killing people left and right. But God so convicts and touches, touches his heart, he repents. And he makes a decree across the entire city that everybody, including all the animals, have got to fast and humble themselves before God. It, it's a pretty bizarre thing that happens in Nineveh. God, let it happen again in America. Amen. Verse 10, then God saw their works. Now, in the very first verse, it says God looked down on Nineveh and he saw something else. What was it? He said he saw their wickedness. But now things have changed in Nineveh. Things have turned. And God looks down and he sees a different thing. These people have humbled themselves. They've repented before God. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way 
And God relented from the disaster that he, had, he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And we said this phrase, if you repent, God will relent. If you will humble yourself, God will stop and have mercy. That's what he does in Nineveh. It's a great day. Now, if the story ended here, it'd be a great story of restoration, wouldn't it? It'd be a great story of restoration of a fallen believer who got, back, who got off track, got rebellious, got back on track, and God used him to be instrumental in the salvation of an entire city. I mean, there's not a preacher I don't know that wouldn't like to have that on their resume. That would be an amazing accomplishment. It, it's, it's one of the greatest revivals really in human history that a whole community of tens of thousands of people in just a short season, boom, repent and come back to God. It'd be a great story if it ended right there, but it doesn't. There's this bizarre chapter four that is in the book. Have y'all found that to be kind of bizarre? It, it, it's kind of weird. And if you hadn't studied Jonah, you may not even know what's in there. This, this story of Jonah ends in this bizarre encounter between God and Jonah having this conversation and it holds a very challenging message that is meant for all of us to hear. All right, so now let's go into chapter four, the very first verse of chapter four. So God is happy. He's happy with Nineveh. He's happy with the way things have turned out. But Jonah is upset. You see what's happening here? God and Jonah can't get on the same page for very long. You ever feel like that yourself sometimes? God's upset. Jonah's going to do his own thing. Jonah's happy. Now God is up, upset. God's happy. Now Jonah's upset. It's quite a cycle. It's kind of like life sometimes. Verse 1 says this. God's happy, but verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Oh boy, got hot. Imagine getting hot over somebody getting saved. <laughs> Verse 2. And then he prays. And it's, it's more like a clucking off. You know what a clucking off is? I mean, Jonah just goes off on God. He's he just like, I, I don't like this. He takes all of his anger, which David shows us that, that that's, that's a possible way to pray from time to time. If it's real, you got to get it out. So Jonah just kind of goes off right here. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said this. Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? When I was minding my own business back home and you told me you wanted me to go do this, I told you I didn't want to go. And I knew you were going to forgive them. So here's the reason Jonah ran. He says, therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. I ran away from all this. I didn't want Nineveh to be saved. By this, you're supposed to be reading this book and go, what is up with this dude? You know what I'm talking about? You're supposed to read it and be like shocked because everything Jonah does seems to be shocking. And he's, he's a man of God. He's representative of the people of God. And he can't quite get himself right. Does it remind you of anybody else? Hmm. This is why I didn't want to do this. And he continues, for I know, now listen to his logic now. I know, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, 
one who relents from doing harm. I thought that was a good thing. But now this grace has become so scandalous in, in Jonah's mind that he received it, but he didn't want them to receive it. And Jonah said, this is why, God, you're too good. I didn't want to go to Nineveh because you were so good. And I knew if I went there and I said anything, your goodness would spread across there like wildfire and you'd forgive them. And I'm mad about it. So Jonah says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Just kill me, God. I'm done. Now let me paraphrase this for you, just kind of show you what he's saying. Jonah tells God, I don't want to live in a world where Ninevites are forgiven. I don't want to live in a world like that. Let's, 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 we've got a lot of political turmoil and stuff going on. I don't want to live in a world, God, where Democrats are forgiven. I don't want to live in a world, God, where Republicans are forgiven. I don't, I don't want to live in that kind of world where certain people who do certain things are forgiven. That's what Jonah says. I don't, they don't think like me. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't have the same customs and heritage as I got. I don't want to live in a world where you're good to somebody I don't even like. Woo! He got real, didn't he? Hmm. That's going to make some more sense in a minute now. And then the Lord spoke to Jonah. He said, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, do you have a right to be this mad about Nineveh? I, I got a feeling Jonah would say, I absolutely do. They're not any good. Everybody knows this. But God asked him a real pointed question. What's all this anger about, man? And you know what? Jonah doesn't say a word. I infer in the idea that Jonah is so mad. You ever been in such an argument with somebody and, and you're so mad, you're like, I can't even say nothing because something, something real rough is about to come on. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And Jonah just, he doesn't respond at all. He just kind of walks away, gives God the hand. I'm done here. Now let's rewind just a little bit, okay? Rewind back to that sermon. Remember that word I asked you to, to put in your memory banks, the overthrown? Jonah's sermon is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this is an interesting message that God gives him right here. And God gave him that message. That word overthrown in, in the Hebrew can be positive or negative in meaning, depending on the context of the sentence, okay? So it can be positive, meaning to turn around or to change, Okay, now, now put this in, in that, that kind of context. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be changed. Well, that's what a, a preacher would hope. It's what you would hope a preacher would hope. That God's going to do a work to where this whole society is transformed. It's changed. But certainly when we read it, we see the negative side of the idea of overthrow. It simply means to demolish or to destroy. So it has the positive meaning, but it also has this... this Terrible negative meaning. Let me ask you this. Because this is the struggle between Jonah and God. Which one does God want? When he says overthrow, which one does he want? He, he wants them to change, doesn't he? 
I mean, the worst sinners that you know, God in his heart. Now, he will judge. Don't get me wrong. He will judge if he has to. But in his heart of hearts, he wants to be merciful and gracious to everybody that's ever breathed his oxygen. You know that about God? So God wants this idea of them to change. Now, which one does Jonah want? Do you think Jonah wants the positive one or the negative one? I mean, he, he's kind of strutting through this city saying, yeah, y'all about to get what you're going to get. It's about to go down, and I'm ready for it. Y'all deserve this. You ever talk to somebody like that? <laughs> just got an attitude. You know, we don't even use the word attitude when somebody's like that. We just say, you got a tude. Something wrong with you. Jonah's got that problem. He literally wants Nineveh to be destroyed. Now, this is a common problem, really. The problem Jonah has is, is more common than you really think. See, we, we don't have the backdrop in the historical background with the Assyrians. They're some bad people. I mean, they're brutal. They're violent. They conquer people and conquer lands. Uh, later on in history, they're going to invade Israel. And you heard the, you've heard the idea of the lost ten tribes of Israel? Have you ever heard that, that idea of the lost ten tribes? Well, that happened because of the Assyrians in, a, in about another generation and a half. The Assyrians invade and they take Israel captive and they disperse them all over the place. And according to some historians, they call it the lost ten tribes. That, the Assyrians, they, they do that kind of thing. They're terrible, brutal people. They're violent heathens. They still kill and destroy people's lives. That's what these Assyrians do. So with that backdrop in mind, Jonah, Jonah believes this, that they are past salvation. They have passed the point of no return, and they deserve to be destroyed. And why is he so angry? He believes that they don't deserve forgiveness. That's why he ran. That's why he went the other way. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wasn't afraid of them. He's a pretty bold man, obviously. He wasn't afraid. He's bold not just to Nineveh. He's bold against God, too. He's a bold fellow. So he's not afraid of them. He plainly reveals his heart right here. He said, I ran because I don't believe they deserve any message. I don't believe they deserve any mercy. I don't believe they deserve any grace. I don't believe they deserve any opportunity of repentance, any hope of salvation. They deserve to get judged, and that's where I stand. That's a pretty tough place for a human being to stand. And we can point the finger at Jonah, but we kind of know his frustration a little bit. Because grace sometimes is hard to swallow. It's so good and it's so big and it's so odd. Sometimes we have a hard time swallowing it even for ourselves. Like, how could you forgive me? I, really? And I know people in their Christian life, they come and they dedicate themselves to God. They give their life to God. And they go home and they struggle for the next 20 years on whether or not I'm forgiven or not. Because His grace is so good and it's so odd and it's so strange that nobody in the world gives it like God does. And now we translate that towards somebody else. I fled to Tarshish because I knew you would forgive them. Now this is what Jonah says right here. He says, you would forgive them because God, you are. He, he, he makes a, a listing of God's attributes right here, of God's character, of God's nature. 
He says, God, I know this about you. I know that you're gracious. I know that you're merciful. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abundant in loving kindness. And you're one who relents from harm. Now, it's very interesting that he would use those words right there. He uses it as an indictment against God. He doesn't use it as a praise. He said, this is why I didn't want to go, because I know you, you have this kind of character. See all those, those listings of those words right there? God has that kind of character. Now, here's the interesting thought right here. What Jonah quotes is a verse out of Exodus 34, 34, 6, and 7. It, it's actually, you know how John 3, 16 is, is, is very well known and most quoted in, in, in the New Testament? Well, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. Okay, it's quoted some some scholars say about 30 times, others say about 25. So sometime somewhere over 25 times, this verse is alluded to or quoted throughout all the Bible. It's the most quoted verse in all the Bible, not to mention the themes right there are on almost every page of the Bible. Okay. now here's the interesting story about Exodus 34 and long story short here. With these words, God reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself and tells Moses, I am gracious, I am merciful, I, I'm, I, I'm slow to anger. God reveals himself this way to Moses. Now, it's interesting when he does this. Moses is on the mountain. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain like seven times. Two times he stays for 40 days. And there he meets with God. And, and if you're in that Exodus 34 time, you're in the Exodus wilderness journey, and Moses is receiving what we know as the Ten Commandments, Right? So Moses has gone up to the mountain, received the Ten Commandments. And if you know, you know some of your Bible story, he comes down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments the first time. And what does he find? What are they doing? What's all of Israel doing down at the bottom of the mountain? He's up in the presence of God, having a good time, trying to get their future mapped out and planned out. And they come down and they're dancing around a golden calf, having some kind of parties that are very sensual in nature probably. And what Moses does, he takes those Ten Commandments. Imagine this. Those Ten Commandments were written on these stone tablets with the finger of God. That's a pretty uh, high moment. You know what I'm talking about? And Moses takes those commandments that he received from God, those two plates, and he takes them and literally he's so upset about this, he smashes them on the ground. You know why he does that? They're no good. Y'all done broke all ten of them right there. I'm looking at y'all. These are broken. And what it was was the covenant. And if you were to look at this marriage covenant, almost like a marriage covenant between God and Israel, these Ten Commandments would be like the vows. They would do these things for each other and honor one another. And so let's, let's take this analogy. If it's like a marriage ceremony, the, 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 the groom's off somewhere and he's getting things ready Maybe he's getting the house fixed up and he, the ceremony's coming and he comes and he finds his bride doing something she ought not be doing at the wedding. Lord have mercy. That's what happened. That's the way Moses saw it. He said, Lord, we're about to make these wedding vows before God and, and y'all are committing idolatry down at the foot of the mountain. This is no good. So Moses goes back up to the mountain, and he receives another set. God called him back up. Come on back up. And what God does is amazing right here. This is where Exodus 34 comes in. God literally forgives Israel 
even for what they're doing at the wedding ceremony. They betrayed him already before the covenant really even gets ratified. And he forgives them. And he tells Moses, he said, let's start again. And this is where God reveals himself. He says, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from harm. Now that's quite a time to say that. Because there's not many men or women that would be in that situation that would be gracious and merciful. Would, would you think? But God, in an extremely sinful situation, shows an extreme mercy and an extreme grace. Right here in Exodus 34. This is the verse that Jonah quotes. All right? The most quoted verse in all the Bible. And here's a crazy thought. Jonah has received grace himself. But he is unwilling to give it to someone else. What's wrong with that picture? Something real wrong with that, isn't it? Now back to God's question. Is it right for you to be angry? Because the irony is that Jonah's actually alive because God is gracious and merciful, right? God is being extremely merciful to this man. Giving him time after time after time to get this right. And even the fact that God's having this conversation. I mean, how many times would you go through it with somebody? I mean, eventually we as humans, we say, I'm done with you. You know, and we pop the chicken neck and do all that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm just done. <laughs> you know how we do. Don't act like you ain't never done that. <laughs> but now my back and my neck. Oh, throw something out if I ain't careful. All right. Here's the crazy thing. Jonah can't see his faults as clearly as he can see the faults of others. Because according to the story, now these four chapters, the sailors pray, they, they commit to God pretty quickly. Nineveh commits to God pretty quickly. Who really is the bad guy in this story? This is Jonah, isn't he? He's the one with the hardest heart. He's the one with the most hypocrisy. He's the one that won't do what God says. Everybody else has responded, including the fish. Everybody else has responded to God favorably. Jonah's the one who stands in obstinate rebellion against God saying, I'm not going to do it. And Jonah sees their faults more than he can see his own. It kind of reminds you of that teaching of Jesus. Remember that teaching in Matthew 7 about the plank? Remember that? Where Jesus says, you know what your problem is? that you're trying to get a speck, like a splinter, out of your brother or sister's eye when all along you got this two-by-four sticking out of your eye. And everybody else sees it, but not you. Now, why is all this important? Let's bring it home. Why is all this important? Because God is looking for people to partner with. That's kind of the, the epic overreaching story of the entire Bible. God creates man in his likeness and his image. And God wants him to have dominion and really be God's representative on the earth. God is looking for people to partner with and to bring his salvation to others. And the, 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 the way this works is you've got to learn to not just do the right thing. See, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he does the right thing. Eventually. But God doesn't just want you to do the right thing. 
He wants you to do the right thing with the right heart. You know, you know the difference? I mean, you've got kids. Some, some of y'all have kids. And you know what it's like to see a kid that just does something maybe to get something or to get a result or to get you off their back? You know the difference when they do it just because you told them to do it or when they do it because they actually love you and want to respect you and just do something nice for you. You know the difference, don't you? And mom and daddy knows that, right? See, the Pharisees got in trouble with God on all that. The Pharisees, more than anybody in their generation, they always did the right thing, it seemed. But God didn't, he looked right past all that right action and he looked straight into their soul and he said, I won't take it. I don't receive it. Because yeah, outwardly you're doing the right thing, but inwardly you got the wrong heart. That's what's going on with Jonah. You see it? Something, Jonah's got heart trouble. And God wants to come in and do surgery and say, no, son, listen. See, Jonah's called to be salt and light. Remember that phrase? Jonah's called to be salt and light to Nineveh. Israel's called to be salt and light to the entire world. The church, us, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be salt and light. It's this important partnership. And God wants us as his followers not to just mouth the right words, not to just go through the motions, go to the right places, do the right thing, and help little old ladies across the street. God wants our hearts to be right to where we're literally doing the right thing the right way with the right heart. That's a big deal to God. Scripture says this about the Word, that the Word comes in and it, and it not only judges your actions, but it judges the motives, and somebody finish with me, and the intent of your heart. And that can be a rough day on a brother. But it can also be a good day. It can be a day where you get set free. So God wants to help Jonah see, and this is where the story gets real bizarre. God wants to help Jonah see, so there's this little exchange that goes on between them. Jonah builds a small shelter on the outside of Nineveh, the outskirts of Nineveh. I, I, I see him on a little hill. I see him got a nice little vantage point overlooking the city. And he waits. Now the message is 40 days, right? So no telling how long he's on this hillside. But he's waiting on day what? <laughs> what day is he waiting on? Day 40, isn't he? And why is he waiting? Tell me. Why do you, why do you think he's waiting? Fireworks start at 9 p.m. I'm just waiting. I know God's gracious, but I'm just hoping that maybe this time he won't be. It's pretty rough now. So he builds this small shelter. It's hot. Jonah's hot. I mean, he's boiling with anger. And God wants to cool Jonah down a little bit. So God does this bizarre thing. He gives him a little air conditioning. He causes over Jonah's shelter, this little hut. Can you see the little hut? He got him some branches. He built it up. Got it real nice. He got a little place where he can just close the flap and sleep at night. You know, that kind of thing. God's going to help the brother out. He's going to teach him a lesson on why he's doing it. He causes this plant overnight to grow over the top of this shelter and just enhance Jonah's comfort. Cut the heat off of him. And hopefully, if God can just do this and be gracious to him, hopefully this man will cool down. And come to his senses. That's the hopes. I hear God hoping that. And Jonah loves it. He wakes up in the morning and man, there's, there's, a, there's a vine and a plant on this little thing. Got little blooms on it. It's good. It feels cool. I mean, the temperature dropped 20 degrees. I, thank you, God. 
We know what that's like, don't we? Thank you, God. He loves it. He's grateful, and now Jonah is happy again. The boy's bipolar. We already said that about him a couple weeks ago. I mean, he's all over the map. Boom, 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 boom. He's up and down, up and down, just like us sometimes. huh? Jonah is happy, but God's not. God's not happy with his attitude at all. And here's, here's the mercy that God extends Jonah, and he'll extend it to you too. God will not let Jonah stay in this toxic, judgmental state of mind. He won't let him do it. So as Jonah gets comfortable, God said, it's time to teach you something, son. He sends a worm, a little worm that comes and, and it kills the plant and it withers away. And then God turns the thermostat up and it says the hot east wind blew through. I personally think, it doesn't say this in the text, I believe it blew so hard, I bet it blew his shelter over. And there Jonah, get this, one minute he's comfortable and covered, and he decides he doesn't want to get right. And the next minute, he's exposed. And yes, exposed to the elements, but the purpose of it is, is to expose Jonah to the foolishness of his own anger. And to the foolishness of his own mindset and his own prejudice. That's the purpose. God wants to expose him and say, son, look, this, is, this just doesn't make any sense. So Jonah comes up with his favorite line in the book. It's just better for me to die than to live. I'm sick of this. In verse 9, God said to Jonah, ask him the same question again about a different situation. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Jonah takes a deep breath, thanks a minute, clears his throat. Yeah, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. You're reading this, and you're supposed to be like, what? You've had, I, I, I bet we've counted 20 chances already for Jonah to come to his senses. We, we, time after time and time, we've been struggling with this man to get his heart right with God. And then finally, with the, at the end of this chapter, he gets even more stubborn. It really is a tragic thing. And God ends the story with this. Okay, let's bring this home. God ends the story with this. You have had pity on this plant for which you have not labored. It's, it's the first thing in the story that Jonah really liked. Nor did you make it grow. It came up in a night and perished in a night. And just like you had pity for this plant and are upset about that, should I, this is God speaking, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? And oh yeah, they got a lot of animals over there too. Bunch of livestock I care about. So Jonah, just like you were upset about the plant, don't you think me as the creator of all humanity should get upset about a people who have gone so far off track that they're so disoriented, the New Testament would call them lost, they're so lost that they don't know left from right. And they're so twisted up in their mind and their thinking and the way they live life that they don't know they should go right and then they end up going left. Don't you think I ought to be concerned about these kind of people? And the story ends. 
And here is why it ends that way. I've had people ask me all the time, why, why don't we have a conclusion? Why don't we know what Jonah did? Well, because the story at the end is meant to point the finger not at Jonah. Guess where the finger is to be pointed now? It's right to us. Because the message of this story takes us into this God idea. I mean, this is a God idea because it sure isn't mine. This is a God idea. It takes us into this idea of love your enemies. Say that with me. Love your enemies. That's a tough one. Because all of us have Ninevites in our life. Some of them come dressed up like friends who betray you. Family members. You know. And here's, here's where I'm at with it. God, I know it's possible for you to love my enemies. You're gracious, you're merciful, you're kind, you're slow to anger. You got a lot of stuff I'm still working on. I know it's possible for you to love my enemies. But are you asking me to do that? What you talking about? And actually, God is asking Jonah to do that, isn't he? And Jesus would ask the same. Over in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, it says this, the, the words of our master. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And everybody said amen on that point. <laughs> we, we, we're down with that. We, we, we can figure that out. That's pretty easy. We know where those lines are drawn. It's us and then it's them. We know where that enemy line is drawn. But Jesus is not through with his message. He said, that's what you've heard. I'm going to tell you to hear something else. I say to you, love your enemies. It didn't get any easier here now. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus would say, that's the way of the kingdom. And everybody in the room takes a gulp and swallows hard. And like, oh, my Lord, I'm still trying to love my neighbor. And you're going to say, love my enemy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Because, <laughs> see, love your enemy's hard. Especially when you think about how they became your enemy. <laughs> I mean, you ever had somebody really hurt you? Or, or hurt somebody that you love? I mean, your, your natural reaction and your first reaction is probably not to love them. What, what's your first reaction? I mean, it's kind of primal in us, isn't it? What's your first reaction? We, we're going we're gonna to work this out. We're going to retaliate. We're going to get vengeance somehow. I mean, we're going to you know, strike back. And when somebody curses me, I mean, you know, even as a preacher, it, it, ain't, it ain't my natural reaction to say, God bless you. <laughs> Have a great day there, buddy. <laughs> That's not my first reaction. You know what I'm talking about? My first reaction is, oh, God, help me. I'm, uh, somebody about to get a left hook. You know what I'm saying? And that's where I always sneak up on you because I'm left-handed. Don't nobody know that. You know, that's worked for me a lot. <laughs> anyway, that's poor Jesus days. But, you know, real pain can make you do that. And, and, and I recognize that we all carry some real pain. 
Many of us have inflicted some real pain. This is difficult. We've all got stories like Jonah's story. And Jesus would say, forgiveness is not just the better way. Forgiveness is the only way forward. Because if you don't learn to forgive and move on, then you're going to be stuck in this wretched prison of bitterness that's literally going to kill you. Love your enemies, Jesus would say. When Jesus referred to Jonah in the New Testament, Jesus made the statement that one greater than Jonah is here with you. And I'd like to go and talk to you about all the ways Jesus is greater than Jonah and how he contrasts Jonah in a lot of ways. Maybe you can do that exercise on your own. But where Jonah ran away from those wretched sinners, Jesus runs to them. And here at the cross, all of this collides. It all stops right here at the foot of the cross. Because, see, Jesus died for us. I mean, I'm not talking about the you today that's all dressed up and pretty sitting in church. I'm talking about you that still got mud and grime on, the, on you from the gutter you crawled out of. That you. We've all got a gutter we crawled out of. Some of them were deeper than others. Jesus died for us. Romans 5, Paul says it very clearly, that while we were yet sinners. The verse before that says, yes, for a good man some would die, and even, even for some guys, some other people would die for them too. But God commends His love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because everybody sitting here one day needed a Jonah because they were living in Nineveh. I made a couple visits to Nineveh. About killed me. <laughs> Romans 5 goes on to say, it says that while we were enemies with God. So here, here's where it all stops. It all stops right here on this cross. Because Jesus takes his position for us. And he doesn't just tell us to love our enemies. He loves his enemies which is you and I, who have made ourselves by our conduct, our rebellion, our hypocrisy, just like Jonah. We made ourselves enemies of God. And there's not a person that's ever lived that doesn't need to come in contact with this cross because our common faults as humans, our common sins, our common failures, they all meet at the cross. That's, this is what unifies us as a people. It's not always our stories that unifies. It's that we came to a place to where we realized that we needed God to love us even though we were His enemy. And there's not a person that you know, whether they've offended you or whether they've hurt you deeply, there's not a person that you know, including yourself, that doesn't need this kind of love. So that, that, that's kind of what bonds us back to the Ninevites in our life, so to speak. The enemies. 
is that when, when you boil it all down, the ground is level, as we say. The ground is level at the cross. That you're as much in need as I am. And we come to the cross to receive the God who proclaims and then he shows it in such a spectacular way that nobody expected. The God who proclaims that, yes, I am gracious and I am merciful and I am slow to anger. And Jesus stretches out his arms for the likes of me and the likes of you. And instead of getting on a boat to go to Tarshish, Jesus bowed his neck and walked right up to this cross. You hear me? And this is the place we come. In spirit, obviously. The cross is the place we come to receive God's grace. And it's also the place that we come to become a gracious people. Because see, it's not just that the world needs God who's gracious and merciful and slow to anger. They need a God like that, obviously. But they need a people who know that God who act like that. They need somebody with skin pulled over them that says, come on, it ain't all right, but I'm going to love you through it. And it's not that God's sweeping anybody's sin under the rug. It's God would rather forgive than to judge. And he says, I want to raise up a people who are like me in that. That's tough, isn't it? The miracle is this for all of us who come to this cross. To receive God's grace. And thereby, we become gracious. I I don't know how you see yourself. But I've said this time and time again in my life. If God can save me, he can save anybody. Oh, y'all know Pastor Ron today. I ain't always been Pastor Ron. <laughs> Got a lot of stuff in my past that you won't ever hear. It ain't going to be written in no books. I'm glad I ain't in the Bible because God told on folks in the Bible. <laughs> I'm glad I ain't in there. I, I, ain't, I ain't telling. I, I, I want that so far under the blood. I don't even want anybody to talk about it. I wish I'd, I didn't remember half of it. You know what I'm talking about? But if God can save me, I believe he can save anybody. What if you walked around in that kind of humility? What if I did? I don't snub my nose at people who are in the gutter today because I was there yesterday. I don't snub my nose at people who are hypocrites because I've been that too. I don't snub my nose at people who are off track and rebellious towards God now. I don't get on the phone and talk about them. I fall on my knees and I pray for them. Because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be Jonah. I know what it's like to be in a fish. I've told you my story, some of that. It wasn't that long ago, about six years ago. I decided I was going to do my thing. I wasn't going to be a pastor no more. I got tired of it. I got tired of folks. got tired of stuff. God, I got this. I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to go on a mission field. I'm still going to serve God, but I was going to do it my way. It cost me everything. 
And I woke up one day in the belly of a fish. It was actually a Dodge pickup truck <laughs> in a tornado. And I came in contact with the cross again. Let's pray. Help us, Lord. We need your help. Lord, do we need your help here. This kind of stuff cuts to the bone. But we really need you to help us. And we mean that. You've been so good and so kind and so gracious to us, Lord, so merciful. I pray for all of us that you'd help us to receive just another wave of that mercy and grace today. 